Hello and welcome back for another podcast episode of Acido Magazine. My name is Emre Schentürk and I'm the founder of Acido Magazine, um, an online magazine where I discuss or analyze political and societal developments and I'm also the host of the show. And today I'm going to talk about a very interesting and very important topic uh, once again. But I think this one's a bit more present in, in most of, of um, the listeners and uh, readers' minds, and this is feminism. Reason for that is that feminism has occupied much of the medial space in the last couple of years. It has gained much prominence and uh, led to a lot of controversies among different uh, yeah, camps of thinking, but also within the feminist community in itself. There's lots of unclarity and ambiguity about uh, or around the idea of women's rights and the role of women, um, all of which are concepts and ideas um, that fly around and people cannot really agree on. So the feminists among themselves uh, are very divided. And then next to it, uh, also counter movements and people who uh, do not like this, this term and what it entails and what they what emo emotions they kind of connected it so this is a very interesting topic um it's going to be uh, it it is not going to be the last episode um, on this one or the only episode on this one because i think this is a reoccurring um, thing that i want to pick up um yeah a couple of times more because it's very complex however uh, today i'm going to uh, i'm going to give you an account or my account on on this topic and how i approach it and what i think is the Uh, the best way to think about the concept of feminism. Um, if we want to think about this concept, obviously um, the central aspect here is um, or are women. And I think the biggest problem uh, also starts here with the clear divide of men and women in this context, right? So a lot of contemporary feminism is dependent on the inequalities that persist on very different levels. This might be physical, this might be at the workplace, this might be financially, this might be also in the household and so on and so forth. And I think what makes uh, feminism difficult to kind of use in everyday language is that we have so many aspects that are tied to the idea of feminism that we cannot really agree on a, on a common uh, form of communication. So if two people meet up and, and talk about uh, feminism, they can mean totally different things. And this is very difficult because then the communication is kind of off, right? If we cannot agree on very clear ideas, um, then the language is, is not very useful and the discourse and the dialogue is not going to be very useful. Another example is democracy, right? Democracy can be virtually uh, anything nowadays. I even heard people saying, this is not very democratic, right? Whereas I'm thinking, you know, a democracy is just something in like a joint, if, if you think in political terms, right? I'm just looking at, at it from a political scientist uh, perspective. It's just a system where people come together and make joint decisions, right? Feminism is more or less the same. We can also think about globalization. What does globalization mean? What does financialization mean? There are so many umbrella terms, but in academic thinking, all of these terms are kind of broken into different pieces and people know what they're talking about when they communicate um, with each other. So political scientists, for example, have no problem talking about uh, 
different aspects of democracies and the democratic, uh, the democratic ideas that are tied to them because they have the language tools to uh, kind of yeah, enter into this discussion, right? Same goes for feminism. Um, I wrote an article on, uh, I published it on uh, October 15th, 2020. Um, so it's uh, yeah, quite some time on, uh, yeah, has, has passed, but uh, the topic is nonetheless relevant. And um, I think, by the way, I'm also going to um, put the link uh, in the description so we can obviously uh, go back and read it. I hope you like the article. Um, I would highly recommend you to read it. But in this discussion, where we need to start thinking about feminism is to get away from the idea that we put all the concepts into one bucket and then treat them as one, right? First of all, there's the aspect of women's rights, right? The distinction already makes it very difficult to make a fruitful discussion because women do not have inherent rights that apply to them, right? If we think about legal frameworks and rights, they should be applied to um, yeah, all people equally. But once you start making the distinction, you're starting to also put them into a special position, which is special in a negative sense. If we think about uh, white people, for example, if we would make white rights a certain legal section within our constitutions, right? We would discriminate against white people uh, because we are reserving or preserving a certain space, legal space for them um, in our um, yeah, legal frameworks, which makes it difficult to put them on an equal uh, level with all the other races. Right? And the same applies also to women. So when we start to think about women's rights, this makes it very difficult to even uh, find equal footing because we're setting them apart right way. Um, this is the first thing um, that, is, that is very important. Um, second of all is the current wave of feminism, which is very strongly advocating for women's rights, which they pronounce in that way, is making it very difficult as well to, to gain or to get to an equal level because by basically demanding uh, something, they direct uh, a certain demand to somebody or to someone or to, to some sort of institution, mostly led by men. So right away with demanding something, the feminist movement actually argues against itself because it puts itself structurally in a position where they are arguing or demanding uh, something, not from women, because they would obviously treat other women as equals, at least we would expect to, uh, them to do so. But demanding it from men is very, very difficult in this, in this situation. So um, these are the problems that current feminism um, yeah, encounters. And also the medial discussion is very difficult around these lines because they push the agenda and the more they push this terminology in this way and with this thinking, the rift or the divide between men and women gets even larger. And this is a very paradox situation, but I think you get, uh, you get where I'm um, uh, yeah, trying to um, yeah, place my argument in. Because if you name something in a certain way, which already separates you in language terms, and language is very, uh, very important and very powerful, 
There's a reason why why I always uh, refer to my articles because written language and also spoken language, uh, oftentimes, the way we compose words defines our thinking. And in, if in our thinking, women are treated differently because they have um, a certain set of rights, and if we treat women in a sense that they or perceive them as as actors within society who are demanding from other actors, from another category of actors, certain things. This sets us apart in language terms and media picks this up. I'm not going to dive into the uh, discussion whether this is um, a conscious and controlled development, which I think it is, or not. Um, this is uh, the, a discussion which I might be um, yeah, touching on, uh, upon in, uh, in other episodes. Very interesting, by the way, but uh, but this is not the topic today. Today, I want to uh, pose an account wh where I think, uh, which I think is much more useful, and when applied and thought through this lens, much more fruitful, fruitful as well. So, what I think, uh, and I'm borrowing this actually from um, international relations literature. Uh, international relations is a subfield of political science, which is concerned um, with how international actors, and this might be uh, you know, societies or uh, <coughs> most prominently states, of course, but also NGOs and non-state actors. But in general, we're talking about political, uh, international political terms. Here, the school of feminism emerged, and I think this is a very powerful way of thinking um, that uses the term not in the sense to look at well, women are t treated differently and this needs to change. But it is rather um, a thought framework which is used and applied here. Meaning, feminism in political terms or in international relations terms means that we look at what kind of power relation or power relations exist and persist between men and women that lead structurally to different uh, lifestyles, quality of life, different behavior, and also affect the roles of different actors within the system. Because if you want, or if you like or not, the role of women also defines and um, yeah, defines and also frames the role of men. So this is important to see it from, from both perspectives and uh, international relations literature actually does that. By dismantling how the power relations among men and women function, which is um, explanatory rather than judging or um, descriptive, and this is also not very normative, right? It is, uh, we, can, we can observe certain things that happen between men and women in structural ways. Then we have the powerful tool to change the structure that leads us to behave in detrimental ways. For example, there is, and this is interestingly from another school of thought, uh, that is um, the, the race theory from international relations, there are studies that examine how people in, uh, certain, uh, from certain minorities within groups behave when the degree or the, um, the proportion of this minority within a group changes. So the group dynamic changes when um, outsiders only have like uh, yeah, are only five to ten percent of this group that we are talking about. And this case, this case study that I'm talking about, 
was conducted within um, within companies. Um, I cannot re recall the article, but I'm but I'm surely looking it up for you. Um, also, a very great article, and there they found that the proportion or the behavior, the group dynamic changes with increasing uh, balance of minority groups. So, if you're below 10 or 15 percent. The group dynamic is very dominant from the from the obviously the the majority, and the behavior accordingly changes. The greater the minority gets until we reach like um, the the balance of fifty percent, and then the group dynamic completely changes. And we can see the same thing with women as well. I mean, we can apply it to to different um, ethnic um, groups, but also um, to the constellation of women. We can also con apply it to age. And um, also to, to skill level and expertise, no matter what, what kind of metric you want to look at uh, within a group. And when we dismantle what kind of situation women are in and what the dialogue is in those minor, uh, minority constellations, we can filter out how um, women are dominated or are dominating in certain constellations. For example, let's take a group of 10 uh, 10 co uh, workers, um, employees in, in, let's say, a, f a finance firm. Just a regular situation, right? We have 10 people, a uh, financial company, they're working um, within a team, and one of them is a woman. Let's just imagine the situation where the nine male uh, co-workers uh, talk to one another, Right, and then they make jokes and stuff, and how men generally um, talk among themselves, you know. And this is again cliche, which we can also put into the to the feminist um, uh, research agenda. They talk about sports and you know um, cars, for example. As soon as the tenth coworker, like the team, another team member, enters the room or the conversation physically, right. Can you imagine the man saying, oh, uh, now a woman is here, we should uh, not talk about sports and, and cars and stuff, and then they are laughing about it, kind of. Just imagine the situation. This is not very far off. This happens. Why do we do this? Because there is a discrepancy in, uh, in the intergroup balance. But if there are five women and five men, the five men might talk about sports and, and cars and stuff when they're alone. And when as soon as the five women enter, the reaction to their entering is going to change. But the same applies also vice versa. So if we have nine female team members and the male uh, co-worker enters the room and enters the conversation, they say, oh, no, you're not. For example, they, they might say, oh, no, you don't uh, know about this stuff. This is girl stuff we're talking about, this and this and that. These are very normal dynamics, but if we start to, and in this situation, this might not sound very harmful, but if we apply it to the greater um, realm of, of politics and uh, macroeconomic dynamics within the workforce, um, within education, within healthcare, we see a lot of situations where men and women act differently because the structures allow them to do so. And this has nothing to do with this person or this, that person does uh, does or do, does not respect women. This has nothing to do with um, rights regarding to voting, etc., etc. Right? The structures that we build allow certain, yeah, allow the dynamics to go a certain way, and we can see this in the realm of politics. Um, 
yeah, quite frequently because the thinking that we have within certain constellations of the group that we are in, and we can see this in liberal in liberal uh, Western democracies a lot, they share very similar, the politicians in power share very similar socioeconomic background, um, which is male-dominated, and the discussions and co uh, conversations pretty much evolve around the knowledge that the minority of women is uh, in such an imbalance that they can still uphold their kind of manly talk among themselves. In this regard, I have a very, very interesting um, article by, what was her name again? It was, it was amazing. It is by Carol, it was written by Carol Cohn in 1987, and it's called Sex and Death in the Rational World of Defense Intellectuals. This article is one of my favorite academic articles because it dismantles exactly the power relation between men and women from a language perspective in the context of international security. And I touched upon this earlier with language and how powerful language it is and how it represents, not, not only represents ourselves, but also reproduces ourselves. In this article, um, she was actually invited back then um, to, I don't know what the, um, what the site was again where they um, are researching on nuclear technology, but she was there at, uh, at a workshop in a nuclear um, technology development facility um, three years before she wrote the article or published the article. And it's very interesting to, say because, uh, to see because she went in there as a woman um, obviously, she's, she's very not, she was very knowledgeable um, on these kind of topics and she was invited there as a scientist and this is a very male-dominated uh, domain. And what she figured out is that the way people talk about the, the nuclear technology there is actually frightening. So if you know, for example, um, the founder of the, the atomic bomb, uh, Oppenheimer, right? They talk actually about Oppenheimer's baby, right? Robert Oppenheimer, founder of the atomic bomb, right? His invention, they call it a baby. And what do we, what is this association with a baby, right? Innocent and lovely, right? It is something, a baby is, is giving you positive vibes. This is something new, something that is um, someone who's going to grow. Uh, become a hopefully a great person and stuff and they call the atomic bomb his baby and then the way they talked about in this in, in this uh, circle of defense intellectuals um, they call very interesting or very not not interesting I mean they call very destructive uh, practices and uh, harmful developments they tone it in down in their language because they are so in their um, so hermetically isolated within their group of um, men who share the the same socioeconomic background, right? Who have very specific ideas about nuclear power and atomic bombs, and they are so far away from the reality of what these kind of technologies do to to mankind to this day. And then we just recently had the discussion. Uh, internationally about um, um, the arms race and, and nuclear um, weapon prolifer uh, pro 
proliferation and stuff. So this is actually still a very contemporary thing. And even back then in the days, just a couple of decades after the, uh, the disasters of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, these intellectuals, you know, among themselves and their very isolated group, they still use very sexualized language um, such as um, potent power without going into the, to the uh, language details. You know, I'm, you probably uh, know where I'm getting at and um, how they are going to, to use them to crush and dominate uh, others with, with their technology. And this is because of the absence, the structural absence of the feminine energy and power that has a more social aspect to their thinking than men do. And when they are isolated, obviously you have a monopole of knowledge within that group and politicians, because this is a very exclusive group that developed these technologies, they take the technology from this very specific group that is, however, very limited in their thinking because of the absence of women in, in the whole discussion. Right? So the connection is very, very deep and far-reaching if you think about it. There's a group of, of men who day in and day out research certain things. And the way they talk about things, which is very sexualized and very um, sometimes aggressive and very far off from at some point, you know, because they, they're working on it for, for many uh, years, at some point they, be, they get detached from the actual harms a nuclear bomb is going to do to societies, right? But because they're so isolated and over and over they use the same language of um, this very uh, primitive masculine thinking, even though they're intellectuals, right? But because of the background, they sometimes uh, or oftentimes reduce the level of communication to the very basics that they all share, right? This kind of amounts to a situation at some point where, they, where those intellectuals cannot think outside of the daily usage of, knowledge, uh, of, of language that they are applying. And this is caused by the imbalance of the intra-group dynamic, which is then actually caused by the absence of women within this group. And because of that, and this is the, the monopoly of, of knowledge in this realm, politics takes the existing knowledge, because it's not available elsewhere, right? Takes it, applies it, and this is the only policy action that can be thought of, because it's the only one that exists. And it's detrimental, because women were absent. Now, compare this statement with all the feminist ideas and ideals that are out there in mainstream media. Compare it. And then tell me, honestly and genuinely, which one is more useful in your daily life. Dismantling something structurally and making inferences on how far-reaching the imbalance between men and women or their, their structural positioning within society is to politics, on the one hand, and on the other hand, I want to wear whatever I want. What, in your opinion, is more important to the proper development of society? Obviously, this is a rhetorical question because we all know it's about the structural situations.
And this is what feminism is for. Feminism is not about women wanting whatever they uh, want to uh, wearing whatever they want. This is not about that. Feminism is also not about I don't want to cook, I don't want to clean. Feminism is not about that. Feminism is about seeing where we as a society can improve by changing the structures in certain ways where women can efficiently contribute to our development. Right? If you take this statement actually and isolate it, you can well say, what do you want to say by that? Do you think women have certain roles that they should be uh, put into and efficiently and efficiently uh, for the society to efficiently work? No, I'm not saying that there are kind of rigid roles and positions that women be in, should be in. As I said, if we would have had women in the development stage of nuclear weapons, I'm pretty sure the outcomes would have been a bit different. All right? This is also not to say that um, we should uh, yeah, apply quotas um, everywhere. I'm not posing a, a policy solution because the discussion of feminism is not there yet. We are not even in, in the situation where we can think about policy uh, proposals because we haven't understood how feminism works and what the value of feminism is actually. So, as I said, I'm definitely not uh, one of those people who uh, view feminism in a sense of um, unrestricted, uh, or, um, unrestricted freedom. I'm seeing it as a lens. I'm seeing it as a tool. And if you see feminism as a tool and use it as such, you can apply it to your life. You can apply. You see the world differently. You all of a sudden can see how certain policy actions and how so certain societal developments were caused due to the absence or imbalance between uh, power uh, in power dynamics between men and women. And this is a very powerful tool. So. Um, Carol Cohn, um, 1987, Sex and Death in the Rational World of Defense Intellectuals. Incredibly good read. Incredibly good read. I totally recommend it to, to all of you. And um, I want to wrap this episode up with uh, saying that I think we should rethink what we uh, believe feminism is. Um, it is definitely not what is uh, propagated by media. And I think this is just uh, deepening the, the rift between men and women. I think it's a very powerful tool. It's a very useful tool. It's an amazing tool to use and to view the world. It helps us a lot. And uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to have a couple of more episodes on this because it's very important. And then I will also bring um, a couple of more examples and uh, maybe some policy solutions because... Uh, This is what I uh, liked most. So I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you um, have um, something to, to, to take away from this. Um, I'm very um, interested or I'm, I'm, I, I would be very happy about your comments and thoughts about this one. And other than that, I hope to see or hear you soon or the other way around. I hope that you come back to see me or hear me soon. Uh, until then... Take care, have a good one, and bye.